The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. So what is forever? It's a question I've been grappling with this week. What is forever? Have you ever considered how hard it is to consider forever? There's nothing in our realm of experience that gives us proper taste of forever. Even the most forever feeling things in our life are temporary. Even the greatest seasons of life are just that, they're seasons. The greatest and longest relationships ultimately come to an end. I, I, I had a conversation with a brother in the Lord this week and he was giving testimony of his parents that were married over 70 years. What a beautiful relationship, but it comes to an end. The greatest and longest lives come to an end. The most powerful nations have a lifespan. The sturdiest and strongest of buildings and structures eventually crumble. The longest living thing or organism on planet Earth today is a 5,000-year-old bristlecone pine tree in California. It had a beginning and it will have an end. It doesn't know anything of forever. The law of entropy is hard at work, causing decay and springs to unwind and atrophy. The sun has a lifespan. It has a beginning and it will have an end. So not only does everything come to an end, everything has a beginning. Everything within our realm of experience, lived experience, tactile experience, is temporal. There's a beginning and there's an end. And so as we grasp for metaphors for forever, we will lay hold of nothing in this material world that will be sufficient to properly convey the magnitude of foreverness. There is not a metaphor that grasps it for us. And so when we gather at the church and we sit under the teaching of God's word and we look to the scriptures and we read that that our God is the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end, when we read that our God is the everlasting God or, or from everlasting to everlasting, he is God, how can we grasp a God so great and so vast and so big and so forever? When time ceases... He continues. Before time began, he was there. The universe is massive and expansive. Before it began, he was there. Where the universe ends, he continues. There's no end to him. He is forever. And then we read in the scriptures that the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. How can we fathom such a thing? The Apostle John, as he gives testimony of his revelation in the book of Revelation in chapter 5, he heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that's in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. How can we conceive eternal life? How can we conceive the eternal worship of God? I love how the lyrics of Amazing Grace attempt to put like a scale on it so we can begin to think of the magnitude of, 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 uh, or the enormity of eternity. The the, the lyrics of Amazing Grace, when we've been there 10,000 years bright, shining as the sun, we'll have no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. That's a a noble attempt. I appreciate this attempt to dip into the incomprehensible nature of forever, the enormity of eternity. The author of Ecclesiastes wrestled with this as well. Chapter 3, verses 9 through 11. Uh, Ecclesiastes says, what do people really get for all their hard work? I, I, I have seen the burden of God placed on us all, yet God has made everything beautiful for his own time. He has planted eternity in, the, in every human heart. But even so, people cannot see the whole scope of God's work from beginning to end. 
it's a hard thing to grab foreverness, isn't it? It's a hard thing to, to understand foreverness. And I wonder, I wonder with forever so far out of our comprehension, might we be tempted to turn to temporal things in life? When the eternal forever hope of Jesus Christ is, is so far from our lived experience, might you and I be tempted to, to turn to the temporal rather than the eternal? Might we trade the endless riches of God's promises for us and instead lay hold of momentary pleasures of fleeting comforts? What does such a life look like that holds fast to the temporary? We've probably seen it. We've probably lived it. Could, could this life that's focused on the temporal, that's clinging to comforts and pleasures of this world, could that be what Jesus was talking about at the end of the Sermon on the Mount to the, the man or the woman who builds their home upon the sand? Or the rich young ruler who walked away from Jesus because he was asked to give away his possessions and he had many possessions and so he walked away from Jesus? Or, or the hoarder who stores up treasures on earth where rust and moth can destroy and thieves can break in and steal? So the question I've been asking and I'm going to encourage you to ask yourself this morning is what does a life look like that has laid hold of the foreverness of God's promises in Jesus Christ? What does a life look like that has laid hold of the foreverness of God's promises in Jesus Christ? Our text today in Hebrews chapter 7, on two occasions it quotes Psalm 110 verse 4, which is the only other place in the Old Testament where we see Melchizedek. It's a vitally important interpretive lens for how we understand Melchizedek. And in that, that, that psalm, Psalm 110, verse 4, we read that in reference to the Messiah, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. We see that twice in our passage today. The permanence of Jesus, the eternality of Jesus, the foreverness of Jesus comes into unique focus in the text that we're preaching today, Hebrews 7, verses 11 through 22. In fact, as we study today's passage and as we study next week's passage, the end of chapter 7, we'll see laced throughout this chapter, chapter 7 of Hebrews, Language of the eternality of Jesus, language that speaks of his foreverness. And this is something very important that the author wants us to see that it may be easier to cling, though, though it may be easier to cling to the temporal, may God today, as we look at this text, may God give you and me the eyes to see the significance of this truth. The big idea of the text is simply this Jesus, the ultimate priest, is our priest forever. He was their priest forever then, but he's also our priest forever. Jesus, the ultimate priest, is our priest forever. Open up to Hebrews 7, verse 11. If you heard last week, we opened up chapter 7, the first 10 verses, and the author is sort of all in on Melchizedek. And so we tried to answer some basic questions. We, we, we said, what's the big deal with Melchizedek? And we looked at, at some different questions like, who is he? What is he like? And, and, and why does he matter so much? And ultimately, we settled on, on, and there's lots of different ways Christians have interpreted Melchizedek over the years, but the ultimate, the ultimate importance of him in Genesis 14, Psalm 110, and here in Hebrews 7, is that he points us to Jesus, the ultimate priest. We said the, the intent of the first 10 verses last week was simply this. The greater priesthood of Melchizedek points to the ultimate priesthood of Jesus. The argument being made last week was that the Levitical priesthood of Jewish religion, of the Old Covenant, was subservient to the Melchizedekian priesthood. He was this priest that was not from the tribe of Levi. He was not a Hebrew. He was the priest of God Most High who was not associated with the law. He came before the law 
And the argument of the author of Hebrews was that this priesthood that belongs to Melchizedek, the Melchizedekian priesthood, was superior in every way. And it points us to Jesus, the ultimate priest. So, as we get in verses 11 through 22, the author is going to tell us that Jesus is a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. He adds to his argument, beginning in verse 11. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than one named after the order of Aaron? Verse 12. For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe, from which there is from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord, Jesus, was descended from Judah. And in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. Verse 15. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest not on the basis of legal requirements concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever, after the order of Melchizedek. That's a quotation of Psalm, 104, Psalm 110, verse 4, verse 18. For on the one hand, the former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness, for the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. And it was not without an oath for the one... For those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one, Jesus, was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn, and I will not change my mind, you are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. Again, I recognize that this is complex, and there's a lot going on. And I was reminded this week that the Bible was written for us but not to us. And so we have to do some work to understand the original audience so we can better understand how it applies to our lives today. And we'll try to do that as we work through the passage today. But, but after making an argument here that the Melchizedek was greater than Abraham and Levi, and after making the argument in the first 10 verses that the, the priesthood of Melchizedek is greater than the priesthood of Levi, the author now, he begins to invoke Psalm 110, this very important psalm for how we understand this mysterious priest king from Genesis 14. Melchizedek is both king and priest, and as we look at Psalm 110, which is being quoted in our passage twice today, as I shared last week, there are two stanzas in this psalm. Verses 1 through 3, the first stanza of Psalm 110, we see a divine declaration that creates a king, and then in verses 4 through 7 in Psalm 110, the second stanza, we see a divine oath that creates a priest. Here's the point. The, the king and the priest were the same person. This was the Messiah. This was, a, this was a psalm that David wrote that was pointing forward toward a Messiah. Both stanzas show that this coming descendant of David, this king and this priest, will defeat and conquer nations. This is Jesus Christ. And so when we look at Psalm 110, verse 4 being quoted, this is speaking of Jesus Christ. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. And so Jesus, the ultimate priest, is our priest forever. And this foreverness sets him apart. It's a, it's a character trait that Jesus possesses that makes him utterly different from the priests that came before him. 
This foreverness character of Jesus Christ has profound impact on our lives. It's significant that Jesus Christ is a forever priest. This foreverness character trait, this permanence of Jesus, this eternality of Jesus, the author really wants us to see this. He, 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 he pounds it as we read through the whole of the seventh chapter. First, he begins talking about how Jesus was a, a, a priest in the likeness of Melchizedek. And he says that Melchizedek had neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. That's verse 3 of chapter 4. Verse 16, 16, he says that this priest, Jesus, has an indestructible life, a life that will never end. There's foreverness in that. Twice he quotes Psalm 110, a priest forever in verse 17, a priest forever in verse 21. Next week when we get into the last part of this chapter, we'll see that Jesus is a perma- has a permanent priesthood. His priesthood continues forever. He's been made perfect forever. The author wants us to see the foreverness of Jesus. It provides huge benefit for you and for me. He's not a fickle priest who serves for a season. He is an eternal priest. And Hebrews begins in verse 3, chapter 1, where it says that he has made purification for our sins. And after making purification for our sins, he ascended to the Father, uh, to the majesty on high, and he sits at the right hand of the majesty on high. Our text next week will tell us that he's interceding on our behalf. And so the priestly function of Jesus is a forever priestly function always advocating for you and for me for all of eternity. This is markedly different from the priesthood the original audience was used to. They were used to Levite priests who lived and served for a season and then died, and then another one would live and serve for a while, and then he'd die, never forever. And so perfection was not attainable through that old priesthood. It took someone outside of the Levitical priesthood to bring perfection, because the Levites, they were weak and and their, their, their priesthood was useless, the argument is made in our text. It made nothing perfect, we read in verse 19. And so the author, in revealing the inadequacy of this old priesthood, he's, he's by virtue elevating the sufficiency of Jesus, the adequacy of Jesus as our great high priest, who is in the order of Melchizedek. His argument is simply this. The Levitical priesthood was effective at seeing perfection, if the Levitical priesthood was effective at seeing perfection, realized there would be no need for a new priesthood. But it wasn't effective. It was awful at bringing perfection. Since it was inadequate in that way, a greater priesthood was promised. And it was fully realized through Jesus, the ultimate high priest. That's the argument. So Jesus, the ultimate priest, is our priest forever. So what I want to do is I want to look at the arguments that our author is making in these five verses. He doesn't just make the assertion. He doesn't just make the assertion that Jesus is this greater priest, he's a high priest forever. He, he, he takes this assertion, this claim, this truth claim, and then in our 12 verses, there's five arguments that he makes to help support that truth claim. He doesn't just drop the mic and walk off the stage. He says, listen, Jesus is the great high priest. He's your priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, and that's massive. That has massive implications in your life. And let me tell you what that means and how he's separated from these other priests. We've got to remember that the original audience was these Hebrew Christians. These were Jewish Christians who'd come to faith in Christ. And they were being tempted in the face of persecution and ongoing sin struggles in their life and theological confusion. They were being tempted to turn back to their old religious practices, to turn away from from the high priest, Jesus Christ, the ultimate high priest, and turned back to these lesser-than-human priests. They were tempted to go back to an old way, and what the author has been doing throughout this letter is reminding his audience again and again and again to not turn back, to hold fast to Jesus. He's been systematically holding Jesus up 
that he's greater than all these other things. And here he is again just lifting Jesus up for his audience to see that Jesus, the ultimate high priest, is our high priest forever. So what are his arguments? Five arguments, five things. I'll go through these rather quickly. First, the priesthood of Jesus replaces an inferior priesthood. In verses 11 and 12, we we see the imperfection of the Levitical priesthood. All Levites did uh, temple work as servants, but not all Levites were priests. Only the family of Aaron served as priests, but the Levite was a tribe, and and Aaron was a family, and 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 the family of Aaron served as priests. But there was a need for another priest to arise, the text tells us in verse 11. Not from the family descent, not from the line of Levi, but a new priest arose in the order of Melchizedek. It was a new kind of priest. In fact, if you look at our passage today, there is multiple mentions of the word priest. I think in chapter 7, 24 times we read priest or priesthood. In our, in our 11 verses, I think 13 or 14 times. This is a passage that the author wants us to understand something really important about the priesthood. And he's saying that the arrival of a new priesthood in Jesus means that the priesthood of Aaron and the law of Moses were no longer in force. So, so what is a priest then? We've got to think about this for a second. I've heard it said that a priest is, a, is someone who represents God in a sacred place. More, more rubber meets the road. A priest is someone who mediates on behalf of man before God and who mediates on behalf of God before man. And so the the author is pointing us to the, the all-sufficient priesthood of Jesus. We've got to notice this word perfect here. If the goal of the priesthood was perfection, the, the Levites were, 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 were failing miserably. We see it mentioned in verse 12. He's sort of saying, he's talking about the lack of perfection that the Levites were able to attain. And then he, he comes back to it in verse 19 when he says, the law made nothing perfect. Those priests could not bring perfection. They could not truly and finally forgive sins and provide access to God. And, and to go back to that broken priesthood was just foolish. How many of you in here have, have climbed Mount McLaughlin? Raise your hand if you climb McLaughlin. How about Thielson? How many of you guys have climbed Thielson? So you get up on those mountains. For those of you that have climbed it, you get up high, you get up above the tree line, and it's, there's no trees, and it's all exposed, and you're up really high, and it's amazing, these volcanic peaks. It's gorgeous. I encourage you to climb it. But if you get in certain spots where they call it scree, Scree are like these little, like, decomposed granite. Maybe it's decomposed volcanic rock. I'm not quite sure of the geology behind it, but there's, like, these massive fields of where there's just tons of, like, this large sand, small rock scree. And it's on the steep side of the mountains. And if you're trying to climb, uh, especially in the heat of the day, and you're in that scree, you take a step and your foot slides down. You take another step and your foot slides down. And it's like you're on a treadmill on the mountain. You're doing all this work and you're getting nowhere. Again and again, step after step, nothing productive is happening. And that's the picture of the old priesthood. Again and again, priest after priest, year after year, they were doing the same function in the Holy of Holies, being a priest on behalf of the people, one day a year going into the Holy of Holies on the Day of Atonement, and it, didn't, it was not effective. It didn't bring perfection. It didn't sanctify the people. It was, just, it, was a, it was a priesthood that was very ineffective. But if you're smart, when you're climbing on Mount McLaughlin or Mount Thielson or other mountains like it, and you look around, you'll notice that there are exposed rock edges. There are ridge lines where you can get up out of that screw. You can sit your feet on solid rock. And there's nothing moving underneath you then. And you can make great time, and it's very effective, and you get to where you need to go. 
The contrast here is a priesthood that's like hiking and scree, that's the Levitical priesthood, and a priesthood that's very effective, does exactly what it's supposed to do, it's on solid rock, that's the Melchizedekian priesthood of Jesus Christ. The author is is telling us that, that Jesus replaces this inferior priesthood, it's an inferior priesthood, that's the first argument. Jesus, the ultimate priest, is, is our priest forever. Secondly, we get to the second argument in verses 13 and 14, where the author tells us that the priesthood of Jesus comes from a different tribe. He, he mentions that, the, that Jesus comes from the tribe of Judah in verse 14. Not the tribe of Levi, as was the tribe all the other priests came from. And we know that. We've talked about that. The interesting thing about this is that, that in Israel, priests came from the tribe of Levi, and more specifically the family of Aaron that was within the tribe of Levi. But kings came from the tribe of Judah. David was from the tribe of Judah. And this picture begins to emerge that Jesus is both priest and king. And since his priesthood is different, it's a Melchizedekian priesthood, and since his heritage is from the line of Judah... Jesus is now uniquely positioned to be both priest and king, and that's the whole content of Psalm 110. I read this week that that Jesus was from the tribe of Judah rather than a priestly tribe of Levi, yet he qualifies as an eternal high priest because he is the Davidic Messiah, called both Lord and priest after the messianic priestly order of Melchizedek. And so this, this otherness of Jesus, this otherness of Jesus continues to set him apart and above from the Levitical priesthood, That's the thrust of Psalm 110. The priesthood of Jesus is superior. So, first two points. The priesthood of Jesus is superior because it replaces an inferior priesthood. And it's a different kind of priesthood because he comes from the tribe of Judah. He's both priest and king. So he's he's mounting an argument. It gets us to the third point. The priesthood of Jesus possesses an indestructible life. That's the third thing the author tells us. Look at verses 15, 16, and 17. In these three verses, there's this prophecy of a Melchizedekian priesthood from Psalm 110, but also this language in verse 16 of an indestructible life. It says that Jesus has become priest by the power of an indestructible life. What is this indestructible life? Well, it's, it's the resurrection of the dead. It's Jesus coming back to life, defeating death. This is the Easter story. This is, this, is, this is Genesis 3 when, 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 when God is speaking over the serpent and he says that the, the, the seed of Eve will, will, you will strike his heel but he will crush your head. This is the fulfilled promise. This is the gospel being lived out. This is the, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the defeat of sin and death. This is the great hope. It's an indestructible life. Those Levite priests, they didn't live indestructible lives. They served faithfully at their altar, and then they died and were buried, and their kids came up behind them generation after generation after generation. There's only one priest with an indestructible life. His resurrection qualifies and validates his eternal priesthood. Death could not conquer Jesus. Therefore, his priesthood lasts forever. In our lived experience, you and me, as we go through life, everything dies. And that's so depressing. But the longer you live, don't you just start to realize that? You just, the older you get, the more and more loss you, you learn to live with. Everything dies. Our, the sun goes down on every day. Our loved ones ultimately pass. Our bodies stop working and die. That bristlecone pine tree in California is going to die one day. Our sun is one day going to burn out. But before the sun begins to shine, 
And after the sun ends, there was and there will always be Jesus. Always. There is a foreverness to him. Jesus never dies. And those who live in him and believe in him will never die. That's what Jesus said to Martha in John 11. Her brother Lazarus dies. She's lamenting and grieving because she knew that Jesus probably could have done something about it. And they're having this very honest conversation about life and about death. And Jesus with compassion looks at Martha and he says, Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. If anyone believes in me, they will live even after dying. Everyone who lives in me and believes in me will never, ever die. Do you believe this, Martha? And that's the same question he asks us. Laying hold of forever begins and ends with holding fast to Jesus Christ. Did you hear that? Laying hold to forever begins and ends with holding fast to Jesus Christ. This new priest had to arise. You see that word again in verse 15. This is something different that God has done through his son. Jesus became a priest not by meeting the physical requirement of belonging to the tribe of Levi, but by the power of a life that cannot be destroyed. I love how one theologian helped me think through this. One theologian puts it this way. This indestructible life qualifies Jesus to be a priest forever. It enables him to make his disciples righteous. That's you and me. Because he will never die or cease to be our priest ever. The Levitical system was, te- it was a temporary fix. It was never able to, to permanently perfect anyone. And David recognized this problem. He writes about it in Psalm 110, actually. He looked forward to a Messiah who would be a permanent priest and thus be able to perfect the people of God. But while it was a future hope for David when he penned Psalm 110, it is a present reality for you and for me. We live in light of the perfecting work of Christ. Jesus has come as the high priest in the order of Melchizedek, and he will perfect all of his disciples. Hallelujah. That's you and me. So here's the argument that the author is trying to lay out. He doesn't just say that Jesus is of a greater priesthood. He says, yes, he's of a greater, he's of the Melchizedekian order, which means he has replaced an inferior priesthood in the Levites. So don't go back to them, original audience. Don't go back to those old priests. He's replaced it. They were inferior. He's superior to them. He's saying that he, not only that, he came from a different tribe. He's from a kingly tribe. He's from the tribe of Judah. He's both priest and king. He is the Messiah that you've been waiting for. And he has this indestructible life. He has an indestructible life. No Levite ever had an indestructible life. He's making this ongoing argument so that these, these, these original recipients of this letter are beginning to rethink, like, what have I been thinking is he's just dismantling the false thinking in their minds. They could go back to some broken religion that never brought life, and he's saying, don't go back. Look to Jesus. He is the ultimate priest. He is your priest forever. He is our priest forever. Fourth argument. The priesthood of Jesus brings people into the presence of God. The priesthood of Jesus brings people into the presence of God. Of God. In verses 18 and 19, he's setting aside the Levitical priesthood on the one hand, but on the other hand, in verse 19, a better hope is introduced through which we can draw near to God, the author says. This is the gospel. This is our hope. And and, and the idea of drawing near to God, of being a friend of God, of being intimate with God, nearness to God, is a foreign concept outside of the Christian faith. 
This is the gospel because of the sinless sacrifice of Jesus, because he died in the place of sinners like you and me, because our sins have been forever forgiven through the cross, because Jesus has made purification for our sins because of his indestructible life, his resurrection, because of his ascension where he intercedes on our behalf at the right hand of the majesty on high, because he now sits at the right hand of God, because he makes intercession for us to the Father, you and I can now lay hold of forever as long as we hold fast to Jesus. A better hope has been introduced through which we draw near to God. You and I can have nearness with creator God. That same God who is before time and after time, who is before the sun will be after the sun. This same God, this foreverness is made available to you and to me through our priest forever, Jesus Christ. You and me today, through Christ, can draw near to God. Say that. It's theologically correct. But do you know what it's like to draw near to God? When you walked in this sanctuary this morning, did you come confidently expecting to draw near to the living God? When you bow your head in prayer and you begin to lift up your heart to God, is there an intimacy and a closeness and a nearness that accompanies that action? When you open up the scriptures and you begin to read the living words, is there a nearness to God? When, when you go for a walk, just you and your thoughts, and you open up your heart and mind to God and you begin to, to commune with him, is there a nearness with God? The author of Hebrews is very concerned about us knowing that you and I, through Christ, can draw near to God. Chapter 4, he tells us, let us with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Later on in chapter 7, verse 25, the author tells us that, that God is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to him through Jesus. He always lives to make intercession for them. Chapter 10, as we get to the end of this argument that we're starting right now, the author tells us, since we have such great a high priest over the house of God, Jesus Christ, let us draw near with a true heart, full of assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. The priesthood of Jesus brings people into the presence, the presence of God here and now. We experience it here and now, and one day we'll experience it in its fullness and glory. I think of my friend Wayne. I was telling his family that when I got here, my first Sunday here at Heritage uh, two and a half years ago, I got here a Sunday before I was supposed to, so I just sort of came in and snuck in on a Sunday morning and was kind of observing the life of the church, and one of the first people to talk to me was Wayne McKenzie. I was watching him set up chairs with a smile on his face, and I was helping him set up chairs, and at some point during the morning, he figured out that I was, a, that I was the new lead pastor, and he's like, no, 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 lead pastors don't set up chairs. You've got to stop doing that right now. I was like, no, man, no. And we went to, me and him and Mark, I saw Mark out there. We went and got coffee together, and we got to know each other that morning. You know, I know that Wayne was a man who, who drew near to the Lord. I hear great testimony this week from his, his family and friends about the way he would meet with God in Scripture and in prayer, and he practiced drawing near to God as a discipline through Christ, all grace, but he drew near to God. I imagine those who I know who have loved Jesus I often imagine them, those in my family and friends like Wayne who, who experienced on this life what it was like to confidently draw near to the throne of grace on this side of glory. I often imagine what it's like for them when they're in glory. They experience moments of intimacy with Jesus 
on this side of glory. Moments of nearness, beautiful moments of nearness here and now. But, but then I imagine that moment when they're in the presence of Jesus, in friendship with Christ and nearness with him and intimacy. There's no hindrances, no encumbrances, nothing stopping. Man, when we, when we were praying this week over Wayne, over his loss, boy, there's lots of grief and there should be because um, it's sad. But what great joy to know that our brother today and those saints who've gone before us who are in Christ, they're in the presence of God experiencing to the fullness what it means to draw near to him because of Jesus, our great high priest. So the argument that is being made here is that, that Jesus is a part of this different priesthood. He's, he's replaced the inferior priesthood of the Levites. He, he comes from a different tribe, Judah, not Levi. He has this indestructible life, and we're going to unpack this much more in the coming chapters, but because of his function as high priest, because of what he's done for us, you and I can now draw near with confidence to the throne of grace. We can draw near to God. It's an incredible. There's no other priest like him. This Jesus, he is the ultimate priest. He was their priest forever. He is our priest forever. Amen? And finally, we have the fifth point of the argument, the final point. The priesthood of Jesus guarantees a better covenant, we read in verse 22. The priesthood of Jesus guarantees a better covenant. In, in verses 20 through 22, there's this oath that accompanies the Melchizedekian priesthood and this, this result from the oath, which is a guarantee. Let's read those verses in, in, in their entirety, verses 20 through 22 again. And it was not without an oath, for those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. The Levites became priests without an oath. But this one, Jesus Christ, was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. That's God making an oath about this priesthood. That makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. So although God instituted the Levitical priesthood for a time, he did not promise its eternal validity. It served its purpose for a season, but it was never intended to be forever, that first priesthood. Only concerning the priesthood of Jesus Christ did God promise foreverness. This promise, this oath, came from the lips of the Lord through the pen of David. Jesus' priesthood is distinctive from the Levitical priesthood because it comes with a divine oath. That's recorded for us in the 110th Psalm, verse 4. This oath of the Lord doesn't just say that Jesus is a priest forever. The Lord swore that Jesus would serve as a priest forever. Not only did God, did God swear as such, the verse also reminds us that God will not change his mind. This oath will never be revoked. It will never be undone. It will never be abandoned. Whereas the Levitical priesthood was around for a limited period of time, the priesthood of Jesus will never come to an end. Laying hold of forever begins and ends with you and me holding fast to Jesus. Laying hold of forever, laying hold of eternity begins and ends with you and me holding fast to Jesus. No such oath accompanied the Levitical priesthood. Only Jesus the Messiah has a priesthood that lasts forever. Ever. Therefore, therefore, he can guarantee a better covenant. The oath of God spoken over Jesus certifies that the priesthood of Jesus will never cease. 
Therefore, Jesus guarantees a better covenant, a covenant in which sins are truly and finally and forever forgiven. Amen. How could anyone turn away from such full and final forgiveness? After making purification for sins, Jesus has ascended to the right hand of the majesty on high. That's how our author begins his letter. What an awesome promise. The Lord himself has made an oath. He has sworn and he will not change his mind. Jesus is a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. I read this week that an oath isn't necessary for God's sake, but for the sake of you and me, of human beings. It confirms and underscores the unalterable character of God's purpose. God's oath here, it demonstrates that this priesthood is permanent. All of this makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. In other words, because of the divine oath that was established, that has established his priesthood, because of the foreverness of his priesthood, because of the indestructible life that this priest possesses, and because his priesthood is perfect, he guarantees a better covenant. Listen, this covenant is anchored in the eternal, unchanging oath of the God Most High. It is expressed through the perfect, death-defeating work of the forever priest, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Listen to this. This covenant, this eternal, forever, saving, salvific, hope-inducing covenant is anchored in the eternal, unchanging oath of the Most High God. It's expressed through the perfect, death-defeating work of the forever priest, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Do you hear that? The author is begging the original audience, and God is begging us to hold fast to these truths. His argument unfolds that Jesus' priesthood is, is sufficient and, and superior in every way. He's replaced the old priesthood. He comes from a different tribe. He's, he has an indestructible life. He actually brings people into the very presence of God, and he guarantees a better covenant. Why would anyone ever return to a lesser priesthood? Why? Jesus, the ultimate priest, is your priest forever. Man, that is so hope-inducing. Right now, right now, as you sit in this place, right now, he is mediating on your behalf to the Father. Isn't that incredible? It's incredible. My guess is, unless there's someone here who have a Jewish background, and there might be some of you that I'm not aware of, but my guess is that, that you have never been tempted to turn away from Jesus and turn to the Levitical priesthood in your lifetime. My guess is that's not been a struggle for you. My guess is you've never wrestled deeply about the efficacy of the old priesthood versus the efficacy of the Melchizedekian priesthood of Jesus. That's probably not been an area of faith struggle for you. No doubt you've never anguished or experienced eternal or internal turmoil as you've considered leaving Jesus and returning to a lesser priesthood. That's probably not been a struggle you've had. However, I'm fairly certain if my lived experience is anything like your lived experience, I'm fairly certain that you've experienced internal turmoil as you've considered leaving Jesus and returning, and returning to beliefs and behaviors and worldviews that would cause you to functionally leave him. I'll say that again. I'm fairly certain that you've experienced internal turmoil as you've considered leaving Jesus and returning to beliefs and behaviors and worldviews that would functionally cause you to leave Jesus. My guess is there's been a season in all of our lives in this room where we've been in that place. Today, as we gather here, my heart tells me that there are some of you here, maybe many of you, who are in a sweet, sweet season of intimacy with the Lord. 
You've been holding fast to him in a very awesome, transformative, personal, friendship, intimate sort of way. It's a sweet, precious time in your walk with the Lord. Praise God. Hold fast. Don't let go. Drink of that intimacy. It's incredible. My guess is also that there are some of you here who've never even turned your face to Jesus. Maybe you've been in church for a while. Maybe you've heard some of these stories, but for you, all you've ever known is holding on to the things of this world or the things in your own life. And and maybe today for the first time in your life, you're able to consider what it would look like for you to let go of those things, those lesser things, and hold on to the ultimate thing, Jesus, your priest forever. My hope is that by God's spirit, through the preaching of his word today, that you are, are made aware of the truth that God loves you. That Christ bore your sin. He, he took your sins to the cross when he died there. And as he was nailed to the cross, so were your sins, the very things that separate you from God. And, and, and your sin was covered. It was atoned for through Jesus. And he took the shame and the sin that separates you from God. He paid the penalty for that, and he gave you his righteousness. That's what the cross does. That's the gospel. And my hope is that today, some of you in this room right now, maybe for the first time, are hearing that truth, and it applies to you. He is your priest forever. But I think about the original audience, and I think about our audience. The original audience were Christians who were being tempted to turn away. For them, it was a a Levitical priesthood thing and persecution and some other stuff. I'm not sure what it might be for you. My guess is there's lots of us in the room today who can identify with being in that camp. My guess is there's some of you in this room even right now whose grip is loosening on Jesus. You're wavering and you're holding fast. You're, you're at risk of giving up. You're at risk of turning away and turning to something lesser, something else. You're tempted to let go of the one you cannot see even though he claims foreverness. You're tempted to turn to temporal things. You're, you're on the, the scree of life. When you turn away from Jesus, you step back on that scree and you're just digging holes. You're stuck in the sand. You're working like crazy, not getting anywhere. And sometimes you're not even aware. You're not going anywhere. You got your head down. You got your head down. And one day, maybe right now, by the Spirit of God, through conviction, your head is caused to lift up and you look over and you see, oh my goodness, what have I been doing? Where am I at? How have I let go of him? How did you get here? Has it just simply felt easier or more practical to let go of him? Is a more real-time, relevant opportunity before you, a more real-time, relevant holding fast to something that you can see, but in the end it has no power to save and guarantees you nothing? Again, we've got no frame of reference to think about forever, and so sometimes we just don't let our mind go there and we just hold on to the things of this world that have a lifespan. And they're not eternal. Only Jesus guarantees a better covenant where you'll find grace and full and final forgiveness. And so, church, and I'm speaking to myself here too, I wonder what or who it is that is tempting you to give up on Jesus. Maybe those words would never leave your lips, but as you examine your life, that's exactly what's happening. I wonder what or who it is that is tempting you to give up on Jesus, to loosen your grip on him. I'm encouraging you, everybody right now in your mind, to to, to scour the landscape of your life and put in your mind exactly that thing or that person or that relationship or that job or that temptation right now. I want everybody to put it in your mind, whatever it is. What's its lifespan? Is there permanence in that thing? 
Is there an eternality in that thing? Is there a foreverness in that thing? And if it's not Jesus, the answer is no. The answer is no. Laying hold of forever begins when you and I hold fast to Jesus. There is only one who is a forever priest. There's only one whose salvation lasts forever, whose forgiveness reaches into forever, whose promises are yours forever. Jesus, the ultimate priest, he is your forever priest. Laying hold of forever begins and ends when you and I hold fast to Jesus. Would you pray with me? Father, so grateful for this word today. God, I'm so grateful also for conviction that your spirit can bring in our lives. So grateful also, God, that you have made yourself known to us and gosh, there are many, many of us in this room this morning who are so grateful and overjoyed with, with this truth that Jesus, you are the ultimate priest and you are our priest forever. And God, thank you that, that you've invited us to lay hold of you and taste eternity. God, my prayer this morning especially is for those of us in this room who have either never held fast to you in our lives or we have been tempted in this season to drift, to wane, to, to, to look elsewhere. God, would you just bring correction, loving, gentle correction into our lives, conviction into our lives. God, would you gently grab us by our, our figurative and literal cheeks and redirect our gaze to you. God, allow us to fix our eyes on you, Jesus. You are truer, better, greater than anything else we could ever turn to. You are a forever priest whose salvation is forever, whose forgiveness reaches into forever, whose promises are ours forever. God, may we confess that, Jesus, you are Lord of our life. God, may we believe in our heart of hearts that you have been raised from the dead, and God, may we give you full allegiance, surrendering our very lives to you, whether for the first time or afresh today. And God, where there is conviction of sin, God, where you have made it clear to us today that there's areas of our life that are out of whack, God, would you give us the courage and the obedience to confess that sin to you and others and to actively work at repenting from that and turning our face back to you, God? Would you help us get our feet back on the right path? So grateful you are a merciful and gracious God and you deal kindly with us. Have your way with us individually. Have your way with us as a church. Be glorified in this and through us. We pray these things in Jesus' name.